5: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop to celebrate the publication of Ian Nairn, Words in Place, published by Five Leaves Press, in which Gillian Darley and David McKee chart the life of the architectural critic and topographer, Ian Nairn, who I quote, taught a generation to look and another to write. Gillian Darley is the author of several books, including Villages of Vision and Vesuvius, and is a regular contributor to the LRB. David McKee is a British journalist and historian, who's written, amongst other things, Great British Bush Journeys, and McKee's Gazetteer, A Local History of Britain. We're also delighted to welcome his chair for the evening, Owen Havily, author of A New Kind of Bleak, Journeys Through Urban Britain, and contributor to Words in Place. The discussion will last approximately 40 to 45 minutes, after which there'll be an opportunity for questions, so please do... Keep, a, keep an eye on what you'd like to ask at the end. I'll be around with the microphone. And now, before I hand over, please join me in a warm welcome for Gillian, David and Owen. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. Uh, okay, so this is going to be an evening in celebration of the uh, writer, topographer, broadcaster and other things besides, Ian Nairn. Um, because, largely because of the publication of this book, but there's also uh, a book which is basically Britain's Changing Towns by Ian Nan, with some kind of introductions um, by me and less photographs. So, uh, this will mark I think the first time Nan has been in print since, um, with the exception of a weird American edition of Nan's London, or a foreword by Roger Ebert, the first time Nan's been in print since about 1990. Which, given that the entirety of Simon Jenkins' architectural books are in print, is an injustice which I think needs to be addressed. Um, so, we will, you know, the, 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 and this kind of points to some of the, to what's strange about this. I mean, it's great to see so many people here because this is a writer who has not been in print for nearly 25 years, who seemed to have completely kind of disappeared off the map. Um, and the reasons for this we might kind of allude to in amongst this, but mostly we're just going to kind of. Um, you know, talk about him and why he's interesting, and we will at some point read various particularly choice bits. But um, you know, this I think should have a sort of valedictory tone. You know, in that finally, you know, there's a book on him, his imprint. Finally, this stuff is actually out there, um, and you know, the, 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 this man who sort of rather bizarrely, despite being probably you know the the, the sort of finest um, architectural writer in, 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 in Britain in the last century who somehow managed to be written out of architectural history. Um, and so with not much further ado, I should hand it over to, to David and Julian, who will, I think, will sort of go through the sort of various sorts of phases of, of, of Nan's uh, work. You know, sort of first as kind of topographer and also then, then as kind of architectural critic and eventually as broadcaster. And we'll kind of pick up little bits from that. So. Well, we thought
6: we might start... David and I would just give you a, a very um, quick insight into how this book came about. Um, and really, I hadn't written anything on Ian uh, Nairn until a couple of years ago, but David got there first, um, and I think I'm going to ask you to start
1: that. Yeah, book. well, <clears throat> basically, I, I've been a Nairn fan for quite a long time, and I wrote, I used to write a column in The Guardian... And I wrote a column in The Guardian about Ian then, and a bit later I wrote a column about Ian Nairn, having forgotten that I'd written the first column about Ian then. Um, but both of them got quite a nice reaction. People wrote in and said, that's the Ian Nairn mentioned. Um, so that's really how it started. And then I did this book, uh, The Gazetteer, for which I went to Bedford. And walked round Bedford and thought, what would Ian Nan think of Bedford? And the answer would be, not much. I mean, in a way, the, the middle of Bedford is like an exhibition of everything that Ian Nan would have disparaged. The number of absolutely pointless notices pointing in all directions and saying, car park and keep left and no entry, is a great sort of bullying culture. When you go down to the river, and the river and Bedford's lovely, but the rest of Bedford, well... Anyway, I mean, we'll come in a, in a moment to Bedford because I think he found Frimley, to which he later moved, was even worse.
6: He was born in Bedford, but I think perhaps we should just very quickly um, point to a rather strange thing that I discovered on looking at his death certificate, which is a document... A a truly hideous document Um, he was 52 when he died I mean he could be writing now he'd be 83 there's no reason on earth that he couldn't be writing now however um, he hadn't written for about four years before he died his death certificate says that he was born in Newcastle which is where he wanted to be born as opposed to where he was born so that's a nice that has the willfulness Mm -hmm. of, of Ian Nairn and Everything that, that we discover about him, really, is that you know, he's not somebody you can pin down. He's never consistent. He's always quarrelling with himself. Not quarrelling, disputing things, changing his mind, and so on. So
1: that's just one thread in it all. Yes, a television producer to I uh, made this point, and I said he seems to change his mind from day to day and he said no 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 from minute to minute he said sometimes by the time he'd done a piece for television he would say i I don't really agree with what i've just said (laughs) so i mean he was he was somebody and he was he 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 wasn't as hard and fast about his views there's a an example in nance london where he basically says I don't think much of Dulwich Art Gallery, but don't take it from me. Go away and read John Summerson. He thinks it's a wonderful building. That's one of the things I like about him. He says, these are my views, but don't feel that you've got to believe them. I'm just one voice.
6: So how did Naam sort of start into this field in which he meteorically flourished and catastrophically fell, I think you could say, It's a strange little story, um, and I was going to read just a couple of paragraphs about one of the more entertaining episodes. He was actually, um, well, he he lived in Frimley, which is on the wrong side of the tracks from Camberley, and uh, anyone who's met, I'm not sure if Nicholas Taylor's in the room, if he is, he uh, he would tell us, but he was brought up in Camberley, where his father was some kind of academic um, soldier, um, and some years later the two of them found themselves working in the architectural press and the architectural review in the same office Um, and there was as big a gulf I think between them, um, (laughs) then politically and uh, in many other senses uh, as there was between Frimley and Camberley Um, but Nan was classic, he was a a boy who was was an only child he was grammar school educated he went to Birmingham University Redbrick University and studied mathematics. And he then went into the RAF, not as a national serviceman, but as a flying officer. And this is when it gets strange. So um, at the beginning of the book, I write, once Nan's training as a Gloucester meteor, Gloucester meteor, I mean, if anyone saw um, Cold War hot jets the other night, the thought of Ian Nairn um, in... Uh, the, the, with the controls of a meteor He um. was a large
1: man, for those that don't know
6: <laughs> It's a large plane
1: He was also a wayward man I mean, <laughs> if I knew he was in the air now I would keep underground
6: <laughs> Anyway, he was trained as a, as a meteor pilot uh, in Gloucestershire and then he found himself stationed in Norfolk at RAF Horsham St. Faith Flying Officer Nan rented a flat from a bank manager and his wife on lugubrious sounding Unthank a word which derives from squatter, road, Norwich. He began to put his spare time and his fighter jet to unorthodox use, scouting the county from the air for church towers and spires, but more particularly for evidence of early country house practice of John Soane, a tricky, ambitious man, rather after his own heart. When I started work on then, I had no idea that he'd had this um, fascination for Soane, and that's quite odd, because I'd written a biography of Soane um, some years ago. And just carrying on, in the autumn of 1952, he'd been to Sir John Soane's museum on Lincoln's Fields and met the redoubtable, redoubtable inspectress, Miss Dorothy Stroud. He knew that, like the curator John Summerson, she was a regular contributor to the AR, and that she was working on a catalogue of Soane's buildings. Nan was her man, and... with Sorry, Nan was her man a man with his professed insatiable appetite for ascribing buildings to architects and his aerial view of East Anglia. Miss Stroud was thrilled. This is some letters which turned up quite recently at the sewing museum. Your method is certainly the best I've come across. How often, when swooping out—sorry, snooping over a hedge, have I wished for a pair of wings? <laughs> and so it went on. But that was just... He was setting himself... He, w- he was working towards... Um, his dream, which was to work for the architectural
1: press and in particular the architectural review. Yes, and Excellent. I mean, he, he was determined to work for the. He, he got out of the uh, Air Force uh, when he could. I suspect that one reason why he went to the Air Force not on national service was that if you did three years rather than two, uh, you got better pay. I remember well, I, I did national service in the Army, and people explained to me that if I did three years rather than two, I would be much better off. And my feeling was, am I to give up three years of my life rather than two to the authorities? But anyway, Nan did that, and he didn't like it in the RAF. There's some quite interesting things in the book. We talked to the actor Roddy Moore Roxby, who knew him when he was at Norwich in the Air Force, and said how miserable he was. So he got out, uh, and one thing he took with him was his old RAF greatcoat and dressed clad in this heavy RAF greatcoat dyed by then so that he didn't look like an airman. Uh, he started haunting the premises of the architectural review uh, and uh, trying to persuade them that the review would be incomplete until they employed Ian Nairn. And he was very persistent, and the man who ran the architectural review, Hubert de Cronin Hastings, who was an eccentric after Ian Nairn's own heart, uh, eventually succumbed, and uh, gradually he became a staff writer on the review.
6: And I think the review, in particular, um, H2C, as he was known, uh, and a man who wrote under numerous pseudonyms, including Ivor de Woffel, as well as de Wolfe, he had a sort of penchant for people who were sort of inspired amateurs. He didn't want a staff. I mean, the staff was absolutely packed full of... uh, the most uh, accomplished and professional architectural writers, and in some cases, architects. But they wanted a few sort of mavericks, and they had Betchman sort of who'd bounced in and bounced out and sort of hung around. Um, but amidst Casson and uh, Jim Richards, um, Pevsner, and the rest of them, um, there was a need for somebody who could be in a way jack of all trades and one of the things that nan did was they they designated him or he designated him because he wasn't just the editor he was the proprietor it was a family business the architectural press and that was two magazines and a publishing house so it was quite a good launching pad and that's why nan had honed in on it so he became a sort of um, production editor. I think he's originally on the masthead. He appears, he sort of, you can, you can start seeing his byline in the, the early, in the 53, 54, he's beginning to uh, submit pieces and uh, things are coming out under his name. Of course, what we don't, what I never managed to discover and it drove me completely mad was I couldn't find his pseudonym and I'm sure he had one. Because they all had them, and in fact, I thought I found it, and it was it had all the. I quite enjoy that sort of thing, and it it sort of it was it was full of Norwich. I thought this is this must be man, who was it, it was Bannum, Rainer Bannum was in the same office and was the Norwich man who you know also could play funny games with with um, names of places near Norwich. So anyway, so that was uh, I lost that one. So who knows what he wrote that we don't know. Uh, in the sense that the byline wasn't there but he was on the masthead by the middle of 54 and then he just he just ran with it and they had sort of been uh, playing around with an idea of a campaign and a couple of letters appeared uh, uh, were extracted like teeth from British Columbia where the Betchmann, uh archive is uh, which are absolutely fascinating because in fact... Betchman and Nan were meeting and talking about wires and poles or poles and wires, which was a sort of, um, and, code and things in fields and things in fields. Capital T, capital F <laughs> things
1: in fields. Mm.
6: And of course Nan was the person to take this very inchoate sort of message. I mean, it was inchoate in the sense that everybody was playing around with the idea, um, but he was the person who could pull it together and in 50, at the end of 55, December 55 architectural review, special issue, outrage absolutely extraordinary piece of uh, the one book I can't show you because the publisher still has it is outrage um, but the graphics were absolutely extraordinary and that was Gordon Cullen um, and the a uh, special number became almost instantly a book and from then on nan was he was he was a a, a celebrity figure in yes. the Biggest tone in the loudest tones, and he, he was, was twenty-five.
1: He was was one of the men of the year in the journal, architectural journal, which admittedly was owned by the same company. But even so, <laughs> it, it was a it was a mark of how well he was doing. And there, there were the questions in Parliament and all sorts of things about this. The, the word Subtopia, which was a brilliant coinage, because immediately it caught on. You could you could sum up in one word what he was talking about by saying subtopia it's being created we must find some way of driving it back and uh, even ministers have to give up and defend subtopia against this aggressive young person
6: duke of edinburgh used the word subtopia in june 1956 i think it was or possibly a little earlier um and and so it went and and there was a A sort of, it was unstoppable and the mainstream press had taken it up, he was doing small pieces for the Observer by 1956 and by December 56 he was on television with something called Special Inquiry, I don't know if any of you came to the Barbican um, but it was shown um, there it was um, one of these sort of magazine programs with some wonderful sort of um, Vox Pop interviews of uh, people with clippers in the front of their houses uh, wondering what was happening to the country in general and uh, just sort of um, uh, trying to stem the the, the flood of of, of horror. Um, but the uh, sort of basic, the, the kind of key person, uh, the talking head uh, in that programme was Ian Nairn. So he had really within 12 months gone from being a, a journalist in the professional press to being a figure um, of national renown
1: and it was only a question of time before it became an international renown. It, it's, um, it's interesting to note that his anger about subtopia and what's being done to the environment coincides almost exactly with the angry young men um, I think John Osborne's look back in anger and subtopia uh, outrage are more or less uh, within a few months of each other Uh, But there's one distinction here, which is the point about John Osborne's Angry Young Man was that he said there are no great causes left, whereas the whole point about Ian Nairn said "There, there are great causes left, and here is one. And if we don't engage with this great cause, then we are asking for even more trouble than we've got.
6: And then came the call from the USA, and I'm just going to read a tiny little note here. This is a book that probably... Doubt very many of you have seen the exploding metropolis by the editors of Fortune magazine. So this is a Time Life magazine, which was um, very interestingly actually uh, mounting an attack on sort of unfettered development of cities. So um, it was um, a publication, and the article, the original articles, and this publication were. Um, Provoked quite a storm at Time Life because this was not um, the received view uh, in in head office. But <coughs> Ian Nairn was asked, together with Gordon Cullen, to go and do a little sort of analysis of um, the cityscape in the States, along the lines of what they'd uh, already done in the AR uh, in, in Britain. And there's a little introduction which goes. Human scale, something all designers of downtown projects praise in theory and most obliterate in the projects, is the quality the city most desperately needs. Few men have so perceptive an eye for the details that make this scale as Gordon Cullen and Ian Nan of the British Architectural Review. Together they produced two critiques on the English landscape and townscape, outrage and counterattack. Counterattack was the, was the following year, uh, 1956 that have provoked so much attention and second thoughts from architects, planners and citizens that a counterattack bureau has been set up to handle the flood of inquiries. Well, the counter-attack bureau was actually Nan's desk. <laughs> be that as it may. The editors asked Mr. Nan and Mr. Cullen to look at the townscape of our own cities to sketch not the horrors known so well, but the strengths so easily overlooked. Mr. Cullen, who likes to draw cities the way people actually see them, from eye level has done the drawings Mr Nan, who did the walking has written the captions and anyone who's interested can have a look at this afterwards but the point was that Cullen never went because he was—he um, never flew and there wasn't time so in fact Ian Nan took the photographs and Cullen drew um, these images from Nan's photographs um, and this was the beginning of a, a relationship with uh, between Ian Nairn and the USA which uh, I think you could say was a sort of real roller coaster because it went from the the excitement. I mean in nineteen fifty seven he's you know the toast of you know the glitterati the of the architectural world in New York. He stays with Jane Jacobs um twice in fact but on this occasion for the first time. So he's he, he's sort of in the midst of it all. And then he goes back uh in nineteen fifty nine and uh, by this time he's wheeled himself a rather amazing uh, Rockefeller Foundation uh, grant, and he completely subverts it. Uh, if you compare what they asked him to do with what he did, there's no relation whatsoever. He was quite sly, mm-hmm. and he did a ten-week ten road trip. Um, he, uh, he bought himself um, a Lincoln, I think it was. No, oh, Plymouth. Plymouth. Oh, Plymouth, sorry. Mm. <coughs> And uh, he really, you know, he liked cars just a little bit less than planes, and he drove. But it was a, a disastrous, sad trip. It would seem from everything that that emerges from it. But later on, he went back to the states, and he, he it, in the end, he wrote a piece in the Sunday Times, I think, in the seventies, saying it's all right now. I've been again, and I went to the right places this time, and how I, I see the point to of love it. The U.S. It was called. Yes.
5: Yeah.
6: But he did find. I mean, he was despairing of how. You know the, the untrammeled mess of uh, you know out of out of town USA and the way in which it joined up, you know one settlement joined to the next and and the thing is, uh, in his definition was completely inchoate and he thought he'd better give it a different word from Subtopia the British one so he called it Gloop, which I think probably would never catch on but that's what he called it.
1: Well, <coughs> we want to probably come back to Britain now, because we've got um, two further uh, episodes in his career. He was picked up uh, by The Listener magazine, and Maurice Ashley, the editor, obviously, talent spotted him, and they very bravely commissioned him to write series which appeared in The Listener, very good series they are too, one about British cities, and the other about reconstruction of cities across Europe. And that produces some of the fiercest and most vivid, and but also by his normal standards, more rigorous writing. Uh, it's much more rigorous than later on when he was writing for newspapers. And, and that also helped to establish him as a, a very serious commentator. But then he was also picked up by Pevsner. <clears throat> and uh, again, as he had wooed h to c Hastings to get him onto the architectural review, he wooed Nicholas Pevsner to give him some work on uh, <clears throat> the Pevsner Buildings of England, which Pevsner was initially a bit dubious about, but greatly to his credit, he, uh, he said, OK, you can do it. And uh, he started by doing Surrey, and he then went on to do Half of Sussex. Shall we, shall
4: we read that? Sorry, just, no, a, I I want just to
6: read a wee bit. I, I, I'm just going to read a tiny bit, just to actually the introduction. Um, so I happen to know that the um, editor-in-chief of Buildings of England, the publisher, sitting just slightly to my left, um, I, um, I do it with due humil- humility. But um, <clears throat> so Nan writes. Um, Surrey of course was where he'd been living in Frimley, he hated Surrey um, and he um, I think perhaps uh, I should also write, read you the introduction to his own uh, sleeve note about himself which I may say provoked a, a discussion between um, went up to Alan Lane in fact the the publisher of, of Penguin to see whether this was appropriate Pevsner thought, he said you know it might be a bit sort of light-hearted, but you don't mind, do you? And back came a message from Alan Lane saying, no, I don't really. But what Nairn wrote was, Ian Nairn was brought up in a part of Surrey that produced a deep hatred of characterless buildings and places. da -da. Uh, And then it goes on to say, actually, why he um, stepped out of the whole uh, Buildings of England project. But I'll just read a a couple of paragraphs at the beginning of Surrey, because it, it sort of... It just shows... Um, in between the lines really why he was such a a, a wonderful, inspired um, colleague for Pevsner and what a tragedy it was it didn't go further Surrey is one of those English counties that will not fit into the traditional pattern it was so remote in the middle ages that it doesn't possess a large medieval parish church yet today there's hardly anywhere in the county where one can feel free of London, it's been in the forefront of English architecture only once in 1900 that's fighting talk and has since seen the endless debased multiplication of the type of building it pioneered a history of English medieval architecture could be written without once mentioning a surviving Surrey building a history of the suburb or the folly could almost be written without going outside the county all through the county there are these paradoxes and somehow Surrey always seems to get the worst of the bargain This may be too gloomy a picture, but there's plenty of architecture to see in Surrey. But it's often the very small, the picturesque, or the recherche. And Surrey landscape, and this, of course, is is his other great strength, a topographer uh, uh, that he was by nature, by sort of inclination. Surrey landscape is exactly those things. It's a small county with... um, 462,000 acres the 8th smallest in England and compact as English counties go 40 miles wide and 30 miles deep. What is more to the point? Nowhere in the county is further than 50 miles from London and its population of um, 1,600,000 is the 8th largest in England. Within that space there's remarkable variety in scenery and geology. What is spoilt is utterly spoilt what is left alone, or more often vigorously preserved, is enchanting. Certainly in one respect for varied, short-distance walks it's difficult to, to match Surrey anywhere. Five miles will often take in as many different types of landscape. All the ridges in Surrey run from west to east, and hence the landscape, though intricate, is never tortuous and involved in the way that West Dorset is. Da-da-da. And, and so he goes, he analyzes... He, he sort of looks at the patterns. He has a bit of information on the geology. He he turns it into um, a wonderful sort of vivid picture of of heights and depths and and breadth and so on. Uh, so. Uh,
4: sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I was going to abuse the chair by reading from the listener essays. So yes, yeah. <laughs> it's under the. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is yes. an original version of it. It goes for silly money on eBay, which is. One yep. reason. So you have to get that one. You have to get that one. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than pay two hundred quid, it's worth paying for tenner. Um,
6: Lovely match set. <laughs> so I, I was
4: supposed to read two two, two paragraphs of where he describes buildings in Sheffield. Um, mainly because there's a little there's a bit in in, 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 in Gillian and David's book where they um, quote George Melly reviewing one of Nan's TV programs, which comes from, I think, something like looking like a bad-tempered mole, um, and and says. Um, at one point, you know, sort of compares him to Betjeman says that he lacks Betjeman's systematic nostalgia. And one of, the things that, one of the great things about this book is that he's incredibly critical of lots of modern architecture that's getting built in the mid 1960s. Um, the, 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 the critique of Glasgow in particular is just, you know, should have made, in the entirety, of Glasgow City Council resign in shame. And needless to say, it didn't. Um, but, the, but he, unlike someone like Betjeman, or later Betjeman certainly, or unlike someone like Jenkins, he, he constantly balances that by going, but modern architecture can be like this. We could do this instead, um, rather than just you know slabs. And um, the two buildings I want to mention, are, one is a market and one is a library. Um, there need be no reservations about the other major building done by the city architect's department. The retail markets and an exchange street designed by Andrew Derbyshire. Like all of Sheffield, it has a sloping site. A simple concrete and glass exterior of office space above conceals an ele- elegant dovetailing of two market floors of gaps in the upper floor to look down on the lower and a halfway level which runs into the pre war meat and fish markets a staggering perspective of hooks and flesh so that there is no rigid upper and lower with its consequences of popular and unpopular floors but only a handful of steps which leads through another market on the way everything flows together as it ought to and shopping becomes a pleasure instead of a chore and because it has been designed carefully and sensitively life comes rushing up to meet it as it always will, given the chance. One of the stalls has a selection of cheeses which would not disgrace Soho. People are shopping in the market who never went there before. Stallholders are doing far better than they ever did before. All this, also, without ceasing to be a traditional market. One of the nicest things is the freedom left to the traders to put up their own signs in their own style, whether it's scrolly or spindly. The designer has been wise enough to know when to stop designing, the most difficult problem no, it's just a <laughs> wonderful little, little passage there. And I think it's worth mentioning actually that, this, that the market this describes, lots of the signs he mentions there are actually still there, um, is scheduled for demolition this month to be replaced with um, an <laughs> office and retail district to compete with
1: yeah. Leeds. <laughs> so there you go they'll never, um, they'll never compete with you <laughs> speaking as a leads why would you want product. to that? <coughs> but, um,
4: but anyway so, 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 so you know at the same time it's kind of, you know, talk, markets are a thing that turn up again and again and again in there and he just loves markets like markets and pubs being places you can kind of wander around and kind of feel you know feel people and feel the polis about anyone kind of nagging you um, you know without being kind of importuned at any point the kind of public life that still has a certain sort of freedom to it there's also lots of sort of descriptions in here of kind of high architecture that are done that that are you know that are extremely kind of erudite and vivid I mean there's a description of Canterbury Cathedral that's just astonishing but um the one I want to just kind of continue just to finish abusing my privilicious chair with (laughs) is on the uh the library of Sheffield University now the arts library which actually was conversely with the markets was recently restored and is now in very very good nick the other new building is the library and this by itself would be worth a special visit to Sheffield from outside it is a squat white box graceless with suppressed energy in the way that if somebody is trying intensely st- sorry in the way that if someone is trying intensely hard to say something it often comes out awkwardly the entrance is though an exciting play of mezzanine levels used for exhibitions an upper staircase to a big vestibule which seems a, dis- seems a disappointment where after all is the statement that was promised in the crouching intensity of the outside it is there all right You have done a short passage from the vestibule and it bursts on you with a bang. The main reading room is 80 foot foot wide, 16 feet high, and fills the whole west of the building with three walls entirely glass and the ceiling painted white. It is acoustically without echoes, so that each sound is precise and cut off, and it is filled with the elegant nervous lines of modern reading desks and chairs, 76 tables, 280 places. The effect is extraordinary, like actually being part of one of Bruegel's snow scenes. And just as the horizon sky and sky in Bruegel are a judgment on the multifarious anti- antics going on in the foreground, so this austere space is a judgment on the various academic antics needed to take a degree. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have one, that's all right. Well, did did yeah. Cause, yeah, he? He Birmingham, but did he have a... Yeah, maths. You know, maths. maths. He didn't. Mm-hmm. Maths rather than architecture.
6: I wasn't
4: happy with it. Um, Beowulf and biochemistry <clears throat> rub uneasy shoulders, whilst well, this proud moral rum puts them both in a deeper perspective, seeming to make a comment to staff and students alike on the difference between knowledge and wisdom.
1: I think there's an important point here about Nairn, which is that he made his name as a critic who said that things were very bad, and he pulled out all the things which you ought to disparage or dislike. But uh, the other great point about him is his enthusiasms. And he had this infectious enthusiasm, which reading him, I mean, I certainly read Nairn in the Sunday Times and went straight out and looked at the places he told me to go straight out and look at because I knew from previous experience it would be worth doing that. Uh, and, I mean, this probably leads naturally on to uh, what Gillian and I certainly think is the greatest thing he ever did, which is his guidebook, Nairn's London, um, shamefully out of print, uh, 50, virtually 50 years old, and that's still full of things which he tells you to go and look at which I go and look at. Uh, quite a lot of what he tells you to go and look at has either gone or been replaced by shards and gherkins and other devices of that kind, but you can still find uh, you can still find he loves dark alleyways, um, as Owen says he loves pubs and markets he loves pubs too much. he loves markets, but he also loves little sideways and says, "Go down this alleyway you 'll be amazed by what you find there. Um, I have actually two pages I, w- I will only read uh, a bit of one of them uh, this uh, was not ripped
5: out
3: of uh, it was not
1: ripped out of a book it was Gillian's copy of Nairn's London which has fallen to pieces so, but this is, this is so like uh, Ian Nairn once the church, which is not in most guidebooks I guess, Thomas Hardwick 1790, the church is an anomaly now with the big house long gone and leafy spiritless terraces of the 1920s crept up across the road it was built by Thomas Hardwick and like all his other churches it has a lot of surface charm which evaporates when you realize the thin lipped sod that lived underneath. Tidy and decent, and a nice academic way with detail, but no more. Worth a visit and worth hunting up the key the nearest clergyman, 114 Overton Drive, make a note of it, <laughs> to see the gorgeous pulpit. An octagonal bowl on a single stem, the joiner in perfect taste, is kept by a wonderful kind of Chinese hat supported on palm leaves. It must be a job to deliver a humorless sermon from underneath this winking, twinkling top. And then the, f- the final line, which is an absolute joy. But the huge tomb to Sir Josiah Child, who died in 1699, looks exactly as if a self-made man had paid the top price per yard for servile adulation. <laughs>
6: and we should just give a, a, a mention to the book that's um, it was it's one of its to be one of its companions and in fact was in fact the only other Nan's guide which was Paris uh, we were promised at the back of Paris it says the next of Nairn's guides to appear will be in London's countryside after that the industrial north and Roman Florence wouldn't it have been wonderful if we'd had them but we haven't and I will just read he went to see he, he, he rather puzzled um, his publisher who was Tony Godwin um, who rated the Parisian Guide almost higher than London one but in fact almost a third of it is um, outside Paris altogether so it was a rather kind of curious reading of what Paris was but he goes to see Hennebeek's house which is in the area that he calls South and Versailles. François Hennebeek was one of the inventors and developers of reinforced concrete. This big villa and studio, which he built for himself in 1904, is built in reinforced concrete too and filled with mad devices that are witty and wholly unneurotic. The windows are boxed out just as they come to be useful. The water tower turns into a circular minaret, its bulgy balcony equipped with gargoyles which point upwards. It must have been a splendid house to live in, Ar nouveau freedom without en licence, and it's splendidly kept, as a telephone headquarters with the rose gardens on the roof. If you find Guimar, who is of course the king of Art Nouveau, d- decoration too much to take, have a look at this instead.
1: And so it goes. Mm-hmm. And then the well, films. Well they uh, have never We'll we'll pass fairly quickly over the newspaper. I mean, he worked for The Observer, and like quite a lot of people who worked for The Observer and were good, he was poached by the famous Harold Evans, who simply went through a list of Observer writers and said that he was trying to perk up the Sunday Times, and he grabbed Ian Nairn, and Ian Nairn was installed. And I think, to my mind, wrongly, was used too much to write travel pieces. He was actually in the travel department. And gradually, when he's at the Sunday Times, his uh, <clears throat> writing becomes, uh, one thing about it, he becomes rather matey. And in fact, sometimes he addresses the readers as mates, which is a bit off, off-putting, especially for women readers, whom you feel that he has not really thought about very much. Uh, but the, the best of it is still, and particularly the enthusiasms, is still very infectious and very persuasive. But gradually, over the years, I'm afraid, um, I mean, we've we've mentioned pubs, and one tries not to talk about it in Nairn in terms of pubs, but you can't avoid it, really. Somebody pointed out that in Nans, London, there are 27 recommended pubs. Uh, two two or three of which have gone, but he spent too much time in the pub, too much time drinking, he was depressive, and gradually it filtered through into what he was writing, and eventually the Sunday Times very reluctantly uh, dispensed with his services, as indeed um, his services ceased to be required by television. But before that happened, he made a lot of uh, really uh, very impressive films of a kind which are not really being made now because uh, he is so much the unpresenter compared to the presenters now where you watch the program and you remember the presenter but not anything that they visited. Um, this is a, a, an attempt to evoke him. He comes ambling down a grim alleyway, a picture of awkwardness in a suit which doesn't quite fit and a drab-looking tie, his hair adrift, his hands in his pockets, his expression locates, located somewhere on the slope down from melancholy to lugubrious. He rarely smiles, and if he does, the smile is brief and conditional. When he starts to speak, he sounds almost apologetic. Very few in the history of the trade can ever have looked less like a TV personality, yet that is what he became, and one whose programmes are still remembered and sometimes even revived many decades later. He may have lacked all the conventional presentational skills, but this was a man with something original and important to say, and he said it, however differently, with a compelling conviction. Um, if spontaneous, he w- he would not have a script. They had to have a script girl standing there writing down what he was saying, otherwise there was no record of what he'd said. The producer didn't know, Nan himself didn't know what he'd said quite often. The uh, the uh
3: Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Production team would then adjourn to do the
1: production and then would adjourn to the uh, to the pub, um, but it worked quite well. The, the, all the production teams liked him. Um, it, it, was, it was he was mainly Manchester based. The only thing they had against him apparently was that he didn't know enough about Manchester United. But they they forgive they gave him for that because, uh, as one of them said, it, it wasn't really like working with Sir Kenneth Clark. <laughs> <laughs> so he made he made all these uh, television programmes and there a variable quality. He made one uh, <clears throat> which was going round Europe where he went to Finland and for some reason instead of sticking to what he knew they deviated to some place he'd never been to and never really heard of and when they got there it's, it's embarrassing to see him strolling around looking for something to be interested in and eventually he says Well, I enjoyed that. Was that effect in a tone which basically said, "What an absolute bloody waste of time!" Um, But uh, the 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 most epic thing which happened on that trip was when they tried to travel on the Orient Express, which in those days did not go through, and he had to get through to Istanbul, and. in the uh, BBC archives at Cavisham we found the most amazing uh, record of this trip uh, mainly by his producer Barry Bevins um, on one occasion they, um, <coughs> it's a desperate catalogue of rows with customs officials, refusal to admit the crew's equipment and when the officials relent, too little space to store it Promised vehicles, which don't turn up, and when they do, are too small for the purpose. And long, crap journeys on impossible roads. And then there's an occasion when, being stranded and having no hotel, they're befriended by a Turkish officer who uh, uh, says that he can find them somewhere to stay, a pretty evil dos house. Uh, but uh, then, as he was drunk and apparently violent, this man began an amorous pursuit of the team's assistant cameraman gender unspecified to a point where they had to use the, all their equipment to barricade the door to keep him out now <coughs> this uh, this would have made a terrific television programme <laughs> they, they did actually record the scene he's, he's in Munich and he goes to this beer festival which is full of people capering about and waving their hands in front of the festival this offends Nairn not least because beer to him is an almost Religious <laughs> subject, and he is very, very. He gets very angry, and he shoulders his way through the crowd, sort of cursing and telling them what he thinks of them. And it's it's very vivid television, and of course, there's about nine thousand versions of it on uh, on the internet in various forms, so you can still get at that. Uh, and the other one which is a really moving uh, occasion is when he goes to a church in Bolton which is in the process of being demolished and he gets up in the pulpit which is a, a gimmicky thing for him to do but basically he denounces it and says he's, he's ashamed to be a member of the same race as the people who could perpetrate this kind of vandalism and uh, Quite often he will spit a word rather than pronouncing it. At one point he sees a house in Bradford, a good old house which is being neglected, and he says, it makes me burn. And you feel that people in Bradford would have cowered when this word came out of the screen at them.
4: And some would have cheered, I'm
1: sure. <laughs>
6: So, I mean, the television
1: career ends with the Follies series, doesn't it? Yes, he ends with the series about follies. He was, I mean, along with markets and uh, pubs. Along with markets, uh, he loves follies, and he quite often writes about follies in the Sunday Times. Quite often he will take the same subject on television, which he's already taken in the Sunday Times. He does this series, Football Towns, which starts with him saying, (coughs) I know nothing about football, I've only once been to a match. But then he talks about the towns he finds, and particularly their northern towns, which people in the south disparage. He gets very angry quite often at the way the north is produced by the south. Uh, at one point, he does a series called uh, something like "My Ideal Towns." One of which is Scunthorpe. This is probably the only time that Scunthorpe has ever been singled out in these terms. Another one's Barnsley. Um, <coughs> but this is part of his part of his thing is that he appreciates what other people disparage and often mindlessly disparage, and that's that's very important in his output.
6: And somehow, it is always a, a completely original subjective personal response and the last of the Folly films he's filmed framed by the Cardington airship uh, Airship hangar where his father had worked Um, that's why they lived in Bedford Um, he was born there because his father was still working there and one month after he was born um, it the R101 took its maiden voyage and um, crashed Mm. and his father had been on a test flight um, but that was the end of the programme and that's when they relocated to Frimley Um, but that scene is sort of, it's a snatch of autobiography and those last films are very poignant and full of little clues about how he's feeling and what's going on and in some ways that's he couldn't go any further because he'd revealed an awful lot of himself in both in the journalism and in the films. Um, and he'd gone over the same ground, I suppose, you could think in, in the 25 years that he'd been working, he'd gone over and over the same ground. I mean, Britain's Changing Towns, he actually goes back. Um you know, he makes a point of going back, but he couldn't go on going back.
1: So you, you can sort of see how the the end was sort of written. Yes, actually, at the end of his Sunday Times period, when he was, <coughs> his days were numbered, he does go back to places he's written about before, almost as if he doesn't have the confidence to do new places. He goes back to a place called Lanthony, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, which is <coughs> in... Um, it's not far from Hay-on-Wye, basically, and he's been there as a youth, and he recalls going there on his bicycle one Easter, and uh, gets cycling up to the top of the hill, and he says, I reached the top, and I turned back, and I looked down and thought, did I really do that? And this is the last piece he writes for the Sunday Times, and it's almost as if he's saying, you know, I did achieve quite a lot, and... I got to the top of the hill, and here he is down at the bottom again. And did he really do that? He did, but he couldn't do it anymore. And there's a a television uh, filmmaker called Barry Gavin who said that uh, right at the end of Ian Nairn's life, just a few months before he died, Nairn had rung him up and said he was interested in doing another piece. And uh, Gavin was very doubtful because everybody knew how much Ian Nairn was drinking... And uh, Barry says uh, that he he gave him some sort of emollient line and he then went out off on holiday and he was sitting in London Airport. He opened the paper and saw that Nan had died. And that's the end of the story and it's a very sad end. And as Gillian says, he would have been 85. Uh, some people of 85 are still writing. And, uh, 83. Sorry? 83. Sorry? 83. 83, even better, yes. <laughs> but of course 83 um, now is what about 68 used to be <laughs> but I mean uh, I'm sure if they've been able to if, if there'd ever been a chance of dealing with his drinking uh, that that would have kept him going but of course you couldn't do that unless you could deal with his depression he often writes about his drinking he doesn't write about his depression but it's clearly there um, I think gosh
4: mm. okay,
1: sure. I, I think we've we've gone rather over our 45 minutes I'm sorry
4: uh, questions, contributions, anything? Perhaps we
6: should ask. Sorry, just Judith actually worked for, for Ian at the Sunday Times? Um, do you want to quarrel with anything we've said, or make any observations? No? <laughs> uh, not really. Other than I don't think
2: it was,
6: not really. Other than I don't
2: think it was a shame that uh, the Sunday Times. Asked him him to write travel because a lot of people were hooked on going to places. Not because they were interested in architecture. They wouldn't have looked at architecture pages, but they would look at the travel pages and they found him there and they went and looked at things because he said so. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, that's a personal thing because a lot of places he went and he told me to go and look at I couldn't possibly have got to particularly when he's in Israel, Australia and America I mean basically it would be lovely if he, only write, if he wrote about places and you could go to them like you could when he was writing about somewhere near Dorking but I just feel reading the cuttings uh, what a pity there are so many occasions when he says you must look at something and you say awfully sorry Squire I haven't got that kind of resources
0: Um, I was very glad that Gillian uh, referred uh, to um, Paris, um. of which I have a copy. To. Snap. <laughs> and, uh, I've always found it a wonderful guide. Um, idiosyncratic, of course. Um, but nonetheless, and despite the fact that it came out in 68, so again, like London, there are places that still are there and places that aren't. Uh, is this functioning? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
5: um,
0: <laughs> And um, if you'll permit me, I'll just read one little extract, since people have been reading extracts, oh, which mm. seems to me to sum up Nairn in all of his writings, if I can. might say so. And it's in the... It's around the Marais, it's called, and it's called Object, <laughs> at the corner of the Rue des Archives and the Rue des Oth- An enigmatic oval thing... <laughs> 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 Who begins... <a laughs> an enigmatic oval thing opposite the impressive rustication of the 19th century part of the Archive National. It is on a splay corner humanizing the city making bearable the worrying fact that 7 million people are living in such a very small space. Parisians themselves do this every day in a hundred gestures. It's comforting to see the architectural equivalent. Someone up there is on your side after all. But what on earth does it do? 20 feet high, no windows, no proper door, a nice way with entablature, and a relief of an epicene youth showing his backside. Suggestions welcome. (laughs) Well, I went to see
2: this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There are lots of churches, but I wanted to see this object. And my suggestion is that the youth is in fact a woman, (laughs) (laughs) but I leave it to everyone else to (laughs) sort that. Just another point about
1: and we've talked about markets and pubs and so on, another thing he loves is public parks, particularly in Paris there's some rapturous descriptions in that Paris book of parks and particularly one uh, where he's sitting there just observing all the children and all the nursemaids and so on it's just a beautiful piece of writing that's in the Marais as
6: well I think Yeah. I think it's interesting how when we've talked about Nan in the last few weeks um, or sort of communicated with with the outside with a wider world than just the two of us doing this book how many people just sort of come up with it in that way um i remember at the at the barbican somebody just suddenly described a particular bit in nance london where he describes a bit of fencing and if you walk along it it doesn't really give you anything but it has a sort of kinetic impression and he describes running and of person the observation was you know it's very hard to think of them running but that's another matter um but it was just a wonderful sort of and that was that was somebody's particular favorite piece and somebody uh, got in touch saying that she'd been in the uh i think it was a powell and moyer school in um, the boltons uh buzzfield school was it and she remembered the the delight, the excitement in the school when it was chosen by Nan as one of his ten best buildings of uh, in, under some category, some whether it was Sunday Times, I don't know. But that feeling of it being a two-way process always, you know, the children having pride in in the fact that their school was his favourite, um, and then you know this lovely sort of fool's errand, <laughs> see something he can't explain and.
0: He does. He reads very
1: well because mm-hmm. he has an ear for changing rhythms. Mm-hmm. And he's interested in getting mm-hmm. those into what otherwise would be as well mm-hmm. as fairly humdrum description. I think Jonathan Mead says he's not only a great architectural writer, he's a great writer full stop. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and his um, we we've taught Jill and I have talked quite a lot about his use of adjectives and uh, writers are often told don't overdo the adjectives, it's rather vulgar Um, (coughs) but his use of adjectives is sometimes absolutely lethal and um, (coughs) I went to a, a girls school in Woldingham, I think it's called, in Surrey where there was a concert going on and we came down the drive and there was this amazing building which looked, I mean, it was so ostentatious, so full of itself, so vulgar, um, so full of sort of baronial trimmings and so on, and I thought, how could you describe this building? I could not think of a word for it, so I went home and got out Nairn's Surrey, and what was the word he used for it? Ferocious. (laughs) Ferocious, <laughs> and that's exactly what it is. It's you feel it's going to get, it's going to grab you and do something unpleasant to you because the the guy who built it is so bombastic.
6: But I've, I think it's it's an interesting thing that when we talk about Nan, you can see him being. He was never sort of partisan. He didn't take a, a strong and absolutely irrevocable line on on any particular architectural style of the moment so i mean specifically um sort of late modernism or um, brutalism he had you know a huge admiration for the work of um owen luder stroke uh, rodney gordon but you know he wasn't he, he he would you know judge each building each structure on its merits and on its placing and it was so often how it sat um you know did it was it was it a rude building was it a sort of was it an ungainly building that just sort of got in the way there's somewhere one of his films he's in Huddersfield I think and there's a bank on the corner and it's just a it's a very ordinary gridded building of the moment sort of 19 circa 1970 um, and he just, he uses, again, a, a sort of a killer phrase for it. It's just sort of, I mean, it's just a dead building to him. It doesn't, you know, it's just a waste of space, and that's the way he did it.
4: No, no, there's bits in the telly, actually, where words don't really come in. There's another bit in the Huddersfield film where he looks at, maybe may even be the same building, he just looks at it and then turns to the camera and goes, Yes. That's
1: that's one of the football towns, and he teams the football towns, Bolton with Preston. But there he's teaming Halifax and Huddersfield. And he said Huddersfield has got the only railway station which looks more like a stately home. But the rest of Huddersfield is just, it doesn't have any character to it. Whereas Halifax, he quite rightly loves. And he says at the end, he, he has this tedious device of awarding scores. And uh, he says that uh, Halifax is three and Huddersfield one or something like that. And he says that's because Halifax expresses itself and Huddersfield does not. And I think that's a very, very nanny theme. It expresses itself. A building expresses itself or a building is blank and occupies the space without doing anything to it.
4: Anyone else? Thanks. been very heartened to see uh, Jonathan Mead's material beginning to appear on DVD. Am I right in saying that um, Ian Nenn's television material is not actually available at all at the moment?
1: Yeah, there's a complete... There's a complete lack of anything, basically. Nairn's London is not in print. None of the other books is in print. <coughs> and the DVDs, which we managed to get hold of by means I will not necessarily describe, <laughs> but we did get hold of them. <coughs> and we saw virtually all the films he made. There's one series we couldn't get. But, I mean, it is so obvious that there ought to be a, D- a Nairn DVD. With how, the how
4: much How much is there altogether? I mean, is it is it quite a...
1: Are you isn't there? Mm. Four, five, six, uh, something like that? I we, think there's a list in the back.
4: There's a list in the back. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's well, very tantalising, <laughs> oh <yeah>. isn't it? <laughs> there, there, there are a few on YouTube. They were not on YouTube until about a year ago, and then someone mm. put up, like, Leads yeah. to Carlisle. Yeah. Leads to Carlisle, Orient Express. I've, I've yeah. seen those, more. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's Just It just, yeah. just yeah. leaves you wanting more. That's the problem.
6: Yeah. yeah. Well, it yeah. is possible. I mean, we are told that the BBC4 programme, which was finished in April... Um, is going to be transmitted in February. That was always the idea, and now I think it's been confirmed. Oh, good. Yes. And I think that the idea after that is... I mean, no, sorry, not their idea, our idea. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful if, after that, they decided to be a bit commercially savvy and put Nan together on a couple of DVDs? I mean, there might be one or two... I think the Finnish one could perhaps be um, I think that taken be out. And there's a <coughs> truly depressing and awful one um, where he's on the canals, and because of something about the slowness of the transport, I think that makes it even worse. And it's the same thing, you know, there's, they've set off on this sort of purposeful journey, but there isn't really a purpose. And he's kind of continually looking for things. And there's this moment where he looks through trees, and there's a really dire sort of four slab blocks. Sort of adrift on, on a, for some reason, quite close to the canal. And he's sort of, you know, you see him just gearing him oh, look! <laughs> or not quite in those terms. But I mean, because there's nothing else to talk about. So I think there has to be an element of, of, of editing of those yeah, programmes. There's, one, there's
4: but one in Blackpool as well that is just, he looks suicidal. It's hard not to be suicidal after watching it. And it's just, it's unbelievably mm. bleak. It's like Beckett mm. or something. <laughs> Probably
1: the, the, the most. Uh, in many ways the worst of the lot is a film he made for the Central Office of Information. <laughs> well, which this are, is bad in a good way, I suppose. <laughs> it's, Well, it's bad and uh, possibly in a good way. But uh, he... It, basically, he's required to t- talk to people, including his doctor, I think. And he... <laughs> The people who are, who are talking to him are embarrassed, and he appears to be even more embarrassed than they are embarrassed. And by the time i finished watching it, I felt as embarrassed as all of them put together. <laughs> um, it just wasn't him. And when the, the Finland film is called "Finding Finns," but he doesn't find Finns, he finds <laughs> Finland. But and he says how nice the people are. But uh, I mean, they they could just be extras, basically. They flip by on their bicycles, but he never actually talks to anyone. He hardly ever talks to anyone. Any anyway. Of his programs, and not that they were the worse for that, but it is a sign of how he operated. I, I, also, to mention that John Mapplebeck, who was his main producer, um, talking about how Nan didn't like scripts and so on, and I was talking about Betjeman, and he said, Oh, the difference between them was that they were both spontaneous, but Betjeman's was planned spontaneity. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, all about that.
4: I don't think we should necessar- necessarily rely on his films. Um, I think there's a duty almost on our generation to pass on the enthusiasms. And I know that I've passed on to my son and daughter those bits about that little alley between Broad Street Station and mm-hmm. Liverpool Street Station and that the sight upwards from Hunkerford Bridge to Charing Cross Station.
1: And little bits like that
4: we have a duty, I think, an obligation to pass those enthusiasms on.
1: Yeah, and uh, that is very much what Nairn thought. I mean, I, I was struck reading Nairn um, by the parallel with uh, Mr. Hector in the History Boys, who, who, whose basic message is pass it on. He keeps saying, pass it on, and Nan wants us to pass it on. He wants us to see what makes him enthusiastic, not necessarily agree with it, but get other people to respond to it too. And if the dear BBC would help by putting out the films or the dear publishers would help by putting out the books, that would be a big contribution. Can we
6: just do a shameless little bit of self-promotion
1: and say that and are in a- Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <not>. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you have updated them, though, haven't you? Uh, mm-hmm. they are. No, we haven't updated huh? either of them. Oh, okay. not at so. all.
4: Oh, right.
1: So now there's a a new volume on the Pepsner half of Sussex. Yes. And the the, the old edition covering the whole county is still slightly slightly (coughs) different Is that because you found the the, the NAND so difficult to update and the Pepsner easier?
4: (laughs) You might think so, but no,
1: it it just worked out that way. Right.
6: The question was about, um, sorry, the the response was, was about the two halves of Sussex, um, one half having been revised very recently uh, and the other one, his half, West Sussex, not yet. We ought to just say, one bring somebody else into this story, though, who got left out and um, we never found a picture, I mean, probably could have done, uh, and that is of Judy Nairn, his second wife, who was, of course, um, a formidable editor at the Buildings of England and, um, at, uh, more widely, at uh, Allen Lane Penguin. Um, and um, I did sit for um, about 45 minutes with this terrible um, Central Office of Information film, freezing frames, in order to catch the silhouette of um, the Nans. Um, Judy and Ian shopping in their local Pimlico market and it is in the book and it cost me a headache and much frustration but it is there it, it, you see them scuttling behind a um, an empty trolley in the little market I can't remember what it's called, the market just off Victoria Street it's still there So, but she was I think a huge I think she gave him probably um, more than we I mean, you you can kind of uh, sense the confidence that she gave him at a time when he was very, very low. His first marriage went wrong in the late 50s, and she was, as his editor at the Buildings of England, um, sort of began to bring him round. And a lot of this travel that they did, uh, a lot of Nance Paris is is written as, we Mm. did this, we did that. And they were, I think, um, very... Uh, happy yes, companion the, at Perth.
4: Mentioned someone's <coughs> That she would be in the book if only she were made of stucco or something.
1: <laughs> 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 But he's very affectionate, and at one yeah. point he says, <clears throat> "She may have a demure expression, but she likes her pints of beer." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, also, she said that um, when she was asked uh, about marrying Ian then, <clears throat> she apparently said that it was the only way she could get his copy delivered on time. <laughs> I'm sure that's apocryphal, isn't it? Anyone else? I just wanted
2: to ask a slightly naughty question, which is, is there any evidence that architects and town planners actually listened and behaved
4: differently as a result of anything you wrote? You kind of suggest yes somewhere. There's somewhere in the book where it sort of says that planners starting to speak Nan at some point. Well no, that that, that's architects. And Bother, it's, that, no, it's that's Darbon and Dark, mm, who designed Lillington Gardens. They describe
6: their project in terms which come straight out of Nan. Mm. so I did sort of feel mm. I mean that was a kind of meeting he, he Praised Lillington Gardens very highly, um, and and that's the other. That's half of the of the Central Office of Information film. It was a comparison between Churchill Gardens, and Lillington Gardens as two different strands of public housing in Westminster. Um, I think, I, I, generally no. I think I think <laughs> not. I exactly. think he was thought to be such. Because he had no, possibly partly because he never had any academic status, uh, you never hear of him going to do a crit or all the things that that architectural critics normally do, sort of around the, the the job. He he didn't do any of that because I think he was he didn't want to be part of that. And the nearest, I suppose, you could say to an in influence was the fact that the Civic Trust came out of outrage but he quickly turned on that he thought the civic trust was a prissy sort of i mean uh, he he continually attacked specific schemes which the civic trust was so proud of Uh, windsor pastel colored norwich you know getting the wrong colors the wrong emphasis the wrong they're doing it wrong and of course the civic trust was terrifically establishment it was, a, you know, it was launched at Lambeth Palace. You know, everybody in the room was, you know, in the House of Lords, in some, you know, they were either mitred or crowned. <laughs> it wasn't for him. I mean, and he was, uh, he was supremely unclubbable man.
4: Also, oh, uh, Peter Rees, who was until I think a few months ago the uh, planner, the nice. head, head of planning at the City of London, was apparently uh, Until April. A- Okay, so he's still around for another <laughs> few months. Um, Tanner of the City is a fan and is apparently on the program that will be on in February, um, singing the praises of Nan and saying how influenced he was by him. So make of that what you will.
6: <laughs> Partly because he was Gordon Cullen's assistant. Yeah. So it's it's a but sort of
4: it's it's the loyalty
6: thing. I mean, if you, well if i
4: being generous, I guess you could sort of say that the way that he kind of. There, all his the stuff that's happened in the city for most of the last twenty years doesn't break with the street plan at all. It's all kind of forced into the alleyways and the little streets and so on. And that's probably where the inspiration ends. But
6: anyway, make of it what you Good want. Good point. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give him the city.
4: Um, there was another there, another there. Right.
2: Yes. Um, my my question is very much sort of continuing from the last one. Um, wh- where we are now is there any possibility of of a person or a group of people having anything like the same influence that Ian Nairn had then I was in, I go to Cambridge every week, every week I go in on the train and I cringe at what's being done and I went into Waterstones and there was a book written by a local person about all the terrible things that have happened to Cambridge recently and you know, you would think that with the internet and with the ability for people to get together, that there would be some opposition to some of the things that are are being basically development-led, rather than what can I say, with aesthetically-led. Yeah, I mean,
4: uh, forgive me for, <laughs> for pointing it out, but I mean, I've I, I, I've written about. The terrible things happening in Cambridge, so I'll put my hand up. Um, but um, but otherwise, um, it depends on the place, doesn't it? I think there's a sort of, and I think there's also part of the problem with something like the civic trust is that you do get places where people have the kind of where you'll get little kind of civic societies and civic trusts and so on and things where people are kind of. Banding together to stop things happening, but it often sort of ends at stopping. Let's stop this bad thing. Mm-hmm. And the thing, one of the many things I love about Nana's is that it doesn't end at let's stop this bad thing. It's always kind of you know, and let's have this instead. Um, and that second bit, there's much much less of. I mean, I'm not freaking find uh, uh, that second bit myself. So it's very very much a problem. Um, and. It's a minefield, really. I, I, I think that... I and mean, ways ways, actually, to come back to the thing on development-led stuff, and it, Len's kind of writing at a time that's kind of planner-led, um, and so his targets are sort of different. I mean, you know, the, the, it's the kind of... It, it's the sort of well-meaning bureaucrat is the person he's giving a kick to, and he says at some point you, you both quote it about you know that all these kind of zoning laws brought in to stop people you, people in the nineteenth century called Ebene- Ebenezer and Jabez, and now Ebenezer and Jabez are long gone. Well, they've been they've been right back in power for the last thirty years. And I think that you know it's it's different enemies now in many respects. And the well-meaning planner is non-existent. So it's much more kind of powerful and moneyed interests that are much more difficult to dislodge.
6: I mean, he must have also had in his sights um, alongside the planning officers the members of the committees and those it seems to me you know they're always you know the area where that that's where the the message should be lodged so they should be you know we should all be i mean you know we should be on those (laughs) um you know, in those rooms, listening to planning decisions, um, uh, taking a part in all that decision making. Instead of which, um, you know, you you end up um, sort of listening in on a podcast to the deliberations at Camden Town Hall. And this is a true story, not absolutely up to date, where the podcast actually picks up the chairman of the planning committee saying to the person sitting on her right, "This is so boring. I'm going to go home." <laughs> that goes out on a podcast as they discuss, discuss some relatively important um, proposal uh, within um, a you know London borough which ought to know better, so it is that, that's the quality that that's always been missed, and that's, and that's because you know somebody like the blessed Colin Ward, his message didn't what, and the whole sort of environmental education. Um, movement that uh, he drove never, um, you know, it, it never got enough traction, and so you have this. Uh, you know, we are a, a, a we're never a visually illiterate country still. We're not perhaps quite as bad as I mean, I can remember worse times, I think, but perhaps not.
1: I, I, went, I went to a meeting in Devizes, Wiltshire, <clears throat> where they were going to discuss whether there should be an out of town. Uh, do-it-yourself place or whatever it was, and they hadn't got any of those, and the local paper for weeks before saying this is one of the great crunch moments in the history of devices. do we allow out-of-town development on the fringes, destroy our wonderful town centre, so I turned up at this meeting, and they spent about 35 minutes discussing a proposal for somebody to extend their house, which would hurt the light of the people next door when we got to the out-of-town shopping centre I'm sorry, <coughs> It was all done in about five minutes. Uh, they'd clearly taken the decision before the debate started. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I was talking to someone on the way out. <clears throat> we agreed that the um, the main altercation which took place while this was being debated was between two councillors as to who should have the last biscuit mm-hmm. on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> and, <clears throat> I mean, this great decision which had been... T- and. It- It was as if nobody saw that there was any significance in it at all. And that was quite a decent council, a lot better than many.
6: Perhaps we should hand it to the back. OK, well... (coughs)
2: Yes, just briefly, um, if this is an evening of RIPs, I think that, that we should remember the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, which for 10 years did a job of speaking truth unto power, of challenging developers, of supporting and inspiring planners and encouraging consumers um, to understand what good urban design looks like as well as, um, as protecting public spaces and promoting parks, especially in deprived areas. It lost its funding in 2012 and nothing has replaced it.
6: Good
4: point. Well, There's one person right at the back. Right at the back.
2: Um, I just want to say that I'm the producer who made the BBC documentary and so I can confirm it is going out in February. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I will try and urge the scheduler to... The, the, the controller to show Anne's wonderful programs because I agree they should be reshown. and when Kenneth Clark's Civilization was shown recently the, the, I think the sales of his, his DVD of Civilization shot up so I, I will do my best <laughs> <laughs>
5: that's all i <I'll> <laughs> <Yeah, yeah. laughs>
4: So should we are, we? are we completely going beyond time? Okay. Any other points? Questions?
6: Anything? I mean, I think that point about cave being wound up is I mean, you know it's, it's important not to just sort of let it drop because no, sure, sure. you know there is a sense that you know all the sort of support organisation you know the civic trust has gone. I don't quite know what replaced it, but you know it's not there. You can't get it. It's papers. It doesn't really have any (laughs) memory. Meanwhile, the big Italians
1: get bigger and bigger, and more sort of globally motivated. And the (coughs) the chances of protest now are presumably rather less than they were at one stage. Except for the internet. Yes, (laughs) <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I mean, you do. To be fair,
4: it does happen. I mean, uh, you know, in, South- in Southwark, there's been, you know, quite a lot of kind of campaigning and anger yeah. about what's happening in Elephant and Castle. Funnily enough, because actually, Nairn has gives it quite a kick in modern buildings in London. Um, but um, you know, the, 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 exactly the sort of thing that wasn't there in Elephant and Castle when that got built, actually, in the fifties, is there now, and quite a lot of people there are very, very angry about what what, what what's happening there, and it's just, you know. If they could even get into the planning meeting, they're, they're ignored half the time. But they did manage to get a hold of the minutes. No, it wasn't the minutes. So it was a part of the planning of, of the application revealing that the developers that were basically demolishing social housing estates. Um, and, you know, the, the amount of money that they were actually, you know, paying for the peanuts that were, being, that were being offered in there. And they basically got this kind of redacted document that had loads of um, bits of text kind of blacked out by just going control C, control V. <laughs> and then putting it in a document, and suddenly it all
5: appears with <laughs> the figures. Um, so you know, there's people
4: out there, and they're and they're smart. Yeah. It's just that mm. you know that the, there are very, very, very large interests ranged against
6: them. And I think it's much easier to do when it's. I mean, I was thinking also of, of, of the campaigns in various parts of the north against the Pathfinder scheme, mm. and uh, you know, the, the wholesale demolition of, of perfectly sound housing. And uh, there's some fantastic um, organisations uh, existing to to fight against that, and you know, it, it, apart from the sort of the easy thing of just you know ticking the box and being part of a huge um, campaign online, there are actually people using uh, the internet to, with great uh, efficiency and, and to, to very good ends. So, and and in a way, the information is is getting um, out there by that those means. And I would just perhaps, as a, as a sort of a circular uh, point, when they were yet again going to English Heritage for the um, listing uh, to request for the third time the listing of the Preston Bus Station, I actually I transcribed what Nan said about the Preston Bus Station. It's one of the best bits of film. He's uh, he's filmed on one of those endless, endless um, balconies, like a pea. Mm-hmm the tiny head fulminating mm. this is a magnificent building I mean it was almost new so um, I just wrote uh, I sent a letter saying what he'd said, I hope it helped it's listed
4: mm. okay, well, 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 well and end with that because that's, you know, it's a victory they happen, um, <laughs> they do happen so um, thanks all of you for coming thanks a lot and thanks thank you
0: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at
4: www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.
7: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.